contractors working in buildings controlled by the General Services Administration, you might get buttonholed by a union organizer. That's allowed now under a rule the GSA just finalized. Well, what do contractor executives think about that? We get one view from the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, what are your members saying about this? Do they want union goons, I'm using their purported word, to come in and start organizing people that were just doing their work on a contract? Thanks again, Tom, for having me on your show. I, you know, This is a rule that came out in final form on September 2nd. Uh, there is a 60-day comment period, and we are working with our member companies. The Professional Services Council, we represent government contractors who work on services contracts, technology, and, and professional services. And you know, there's a 60-day comment period that ends on November 1st, and we are asking our members, what are you thinking about this? Um, there was initially some confusion about why it was a, immediately a final rule, and that is because it, it, it amends the federal management regulation, not the acquisition regulations that we're used to talking about. And really, it's the latest in the administration's support for organized labor and workers' rights. It builds on recommendations from the White House and its task force on worker organizing and empowerment that was established by executive order. And you know, the questions that we're facing mostly from from our contractors is, you know, what does this mean for us? How can we talk to our employees? What when will labor organizers or folks um, begin their campaign and, and how will they do it? There are some guidelines uh, that we are referring them to. You know, we don't offer legal or accounting advice um, or opinions, but we do say, you know, check out if you are under a Service Contract Act contract, um, any negotiation on services contracts, There's there are additional rules that you have to follow. Um, you know, and some of it is just common sense. You know, if, you're, if there's a union campaign, don't ever interrogate your employees or make promises about terms of employment, et cetera. But the one question that we face the most is when will our employees talk with union organizers? What will that look like? For a long time now, um, union organizers could come and talk to federal employees. And I think this is just another example of the federal government sort of treating contractor workers like their federal employees. Um, and their assets of the federal government and, rather than the, the companies themselves. So these conversations can happen outside of working areas. So if you think about it, you can get pamphlets, materials, and whatnot in break rooms, in lunch rooms, outside, in parking lots even. And so we're waiting to see how this happens. Again, it was just passed or, or put into a final rule just two weeks ago. So we are watching this very closely. And I guess there's a practical question besides the fact that the federal government legally is supposed to be neutral in labor relations and just making sure that the rules and the statutes are followed, but not encouraging management nor unions, but be that as it may. You wonder how it will work practically because, say, I'm a a larger contractor. I may have people on 10 different contracts. I may have 25 people here, 50 people there, 1,000 people somewhere in a Navy yard or something, whatever the case might be. And what does that mean to organize 25 people here? Does that extend to every employee that you have anywhere? If one small unit at one contract at one location decides, yeah, we'd like an election. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And I think, Tom, this is something that you know franchises in the private sector have been dealing with. If the employees want to unionize at a Starbucks, for example, in New York City, does that impact Starbucks employees and other franchises, you know, across the street even, right? Because uh, it is Starbucks and it's ubiquitous. I think that is one of the questions that we're going to be asking, you know, what does this mean in terms of the company and the workers elsewhere? So as you pointed out very appropriately at the beginning of this, this is for facilities under the control of the General Services Administration. So it's not even throughout the entire government. And so I'm, I'm working through myself you know, how do we provide comments on this final rule and ask the questions that need to be asked? Because again, 
the devil is always in the details, and implementation of this is going to be, as I said earlier, fascinating. Right. For example, Veterans Affairs has its own construction and its own building management, yep. and I mentioned a Navy contract, and in so many cases, facilities are controlled not by the GSA in those situations, but by the armed service involved. So right. it, it sort of does narrow it down a little bit, the scope. Again, devil is in the details, and you know, as, as we're pointing out to companies, you know, they, they need to be monitoring the situation just to know what's going on. Um, again, I don't know that we've seen lots of unions come out and start pamphleting or papering the break rooms and whatnot. But again, it's just been about two weeks, so we'll see what happens. Right. I guess we can expect it to be different unions coming than the federal employee. It's not going to be AFGE or NTEU right. because right. those are federal employee unions. They don't have health plans, pension plans, because those all come from the government, even where the unions are in place. So this would be other AFL-CIO affiliates and could be any of a dozen or 15 of them. It, it couldn't. And it's not just about pay, right? It's also about benefits. It's about job security and the like. You know, as we look forward into the future, you know, what are what are going to be the, the key touch points for folks in these GSA controlled facilities? And will it will it expand throughout the rest of the government? I must confess, I have to become a little bit more familiar with the White House task force on worker organizing or organizing and empowerment just to see what their recommendations are. But again, this is not a surprise in an administration that's really pushing for organized labor and workers' rights. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And let's move on to the other happy topic. Inflation guidance is now out, and people are picking that open to see exactly what's in there. What's the PSC's view of, of the guidance that is just out a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, Tom, a lot has happened since you last had a PSC official on your show. On September 9th, the Department of Defense released updated guidance to contracting officers. They had initially released guidance back in May talking about economic price adjustments or requests for economic adjustments. And and those, uh, for your listeners, are basically anytime a company is experiencing higher than expected costs, oftentimes if they have a clause in their contract, they can make this request um, to be reimbursed for those costs, provided that they provide documentation and, and the like. Back in May, there was guidance that said, we can think about this, uh, reacquainting contracting officers with these EPA, these economic price adjustment clauses that had sort of fallen out of contracts for a while. We were experiencing 2% inflation that was expected, not a big deal. Now we're facing 9% inflation that was not expected. And so companies are really, contractors are really feeling the pinch here. This new guidance from September 9th came out and said, we also may consider these for firm fixed price contracts, which were accepted um, in the earlier guidance. That said, it, it doesn't sound to me like they're very encouraging of the Department of Defense for this. And I contrast that with the General Services Administration, we'll mention them again. They released guidance back in March that they just updated with a supplement saying, hey, we were, we expanded the aperture for the EPA um, or the requests for, for economic adjustments that you can you can ask for. It's been working well. We're keeping the industrial base relatively whole, and then they are getting reimbursed for, for justifiable costs. And uh, we're going to expand that a, a bit, and you no longer require additional approvals, pushing it down to the contracting officer to make these decisions. So, you know, we're seeing on one hand the Department of Defense not being entirely encouraging for this, and the GSA coming out and saying, we need this for, for the health of our industrial base. All right. So you go to one half of the government for relief on inflation and you go to the other half for 
relief from union organizing, and I guess on average, <laughs> contractors are doing pretty well. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask you about is the tally. I hadn't seen this, but the PSC put together a tally of President Biden's executive orders last week in 20 months, 99 of them. Wow. And there's some pretty <laughs> significant ones for, for federal contractors. There, there. This is a really, really fast pace of executive orders. I, I, I hate to use the word unprecedented because over the last two and a half years, that's been used quite a bit in the COVID context. But if you if you compare it to previous administrations, you know, in in um in the Trump administration, he did sign out 220 of these things over the course of four years, but only 92 in the first two calendar years. So what I'm trying to do is figure out how much faster is is the Biden-Harris administration signing these things out. And it's quite a bit faster than the others. I think that's partially a function of not getting exactly what they would like to see in legislation. It's been a bit tough to move pieces and a little bit uncertain in that environment, particularly when you have an evenly split Senate chamber um, where the, the vice president has to break ties. And so recently, in the last two weeks, we've seen three executive orders come out with some impact potentially for contractors, one on CFIUS reform, that's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And this uh, was explained to me that it is really, can we uh, reduce Chinese influence in U.S. Mm -hmm. companies? And so we're going to see that. That was signed out just on the 15th of September. And then earlier in the month, he signed out an executive order on pieces of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I always trip over that, um, mostly because it's mostly climate change and not necessarily inflation reduction. Um, and another EO on biotech and biomanufacturing. My sense is that this is really the Biden-Harris administration doubling down on their economic recovery piece of the Build Back Better agenda. And they did release a blueprint, an economic blueprint, on September 9th. And so I suspect that these executive orders are, are closely tied to that push. All right. So then you're just looking at them and there's no real official contractor reaction here, sounds like. Well, we're waiting for, um, as you know, Tom, these executive orders are not open for public comment. And so we are waiting to see what comes out in the acquisition regulations. That said, you know, we are supportive of any executive actions to help implement some of the appropriations and funding and, and the authorities that were in these these bills, whether it's the CHIPS bill for semiconductors or the Inflation Reduction Act for, for climate-related issues. So on the whole, we're waiting and seeing, but we are, again, waiting to see mostly what comes out in these new rules and regulations. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question one I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something that he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.